Hallelujah. Father, we worship and praise you this day. We have seen your plan unfold through history as we have read your holy word. We have seen your plan change our hearts as we have encountered the gospel. And you have ignited faith within our souls. We have seen you move and answer prayers in our midst. We have seen you move mountains through the exercise of just a little faith. We have seen you, Lord, reveal yourself in nature, making known your great glories all around. Lord, we have seen, our eyes have tasted, Lord, our ears have heard, and we know, Lord Jesus, with the witness of the Spirit, through the message of your word, that we were lost in our transgressions, but because of the work of Christ, we are new in him, new creations, born again. Unto the praise of your glory, Lord, we now worship as the redeemed ones, as the ones who will be resurrected with you on the final day. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the evidence of this very thing that we will read of and appreciate this day in your scriptures. Signed, sealed, and delivered, atonement in Christ our Lord has taken place in history, and for this we give you praise. Now as we turn our attention, our hearts and minds to your holy word, we pray that you would open them wide to receive the glories there contained. We pray that you would change us as a consequence of your word being proclaimed today for those outside the boundaries of your graces that they might be drawn by your spirit to repentance and faith. For those who claim you as Savior and Lord that their hearts might burn freshly within with the reality of their salvation and what you have done to secure their eternal life. In all of this, may we be equipped to proclaim you, Lord, beyond these walls so that your word might go forth your kingdom might advance through your people, echoing your great glories. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Praise God. This morning we have the gracious opportunity of opening up the Holy Scriptures and considering the beauties of our salvation once again. Let us do so in the book of Hebrews today. A title of this morning's message is Melchizedek Forever. Melchizedek forever. These are this reference to Melchizedek, the mysterious priest king of the Old Testament, and the fulfillment of the same announced in Jesus Christ through the author of Hebrews will be part of our theme today in the proclamation of this message. The aim of this morning's sermon is that we may realize the necessity, the meaning, and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, that through this example of Melchizedek, what he represented fulfilled in Christ and then expounded in the book of Hebrews that we might realize thereby the necessity, the meaning, <laughs> and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible with today, would you open with me to Hebrews chapter 5. There are three locations and five citations. Three locations we'll cover today and in something of an overview message as we approach the end of Hebrews, I like to do these messages in overview and this is a kind of partial overview message that highlights this theme of resurrection as it corresponds with the figure of Melchizedek in Hebrews. Our references will be Hebrews 5, 5 through 10, and then another reference to Melchizedek in Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, and then finally Hebrews 7, 15 through 28. So with your Bible open to that first reference, would you stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God and let us behold God's holy Word proclaimed in our ears this day. Hebrews 5, 5 through 10. This is the infallible word of Christ. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, 
but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Our worship text this morning that we have already heard from Psalm 110 is the referent, again, for five citations in the passages from Hebrews we will consider today. In this psalm, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who's who in this verse? The psalm is of David, yet he is writing of a Lord. He is writing of two lords, if you will. Thus, we have a Trinitarian reference. We also have a reference to the Messianic work of Christ, and we have him as both a king and priest in, our pas- or in this passage in Psalm 110, as Christ is compared to Melchizedek. So here we have the David, a type of Christ, saying not of himself, but of his Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, that is, God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When was this accomplished? We can turn to another Old Testament passage, which we have done in the past, to find an answer. Daniel chapter 7. There the picture is the Ancient of Days who receives a king before him. It's an ascension picture. It's a coronation. And a kingdom is given to David's Lord in that moment. When did this happen? This happened, may I submit to you, subsequent to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came to earth, He condescended as one of these songs we sang today said. That means stooped low, made Himself humble of low account, or of no account, as the Scriptures say, to take on flesh, become a man, be acquainted with the weaknesses of humanity, yet without sin. This is our Christ who came and stooped and entered into our experience to accomplish our redemption. But there was a turning point in this mighty work of Christ and His condescension. Philippians 2 references this as well. And what has come to be known as the Carmen Christi, or hymn to Christ, Him, though he was in the form of God, that means he was God, took on the form of man, took on flesh, but this isn't the end of the story. He was exalted. The turning point in the work of Jesus Christ was one of humility to exaltation, one of stooping low and becoming of no reputation to one of ascending glory. And this turning point began in the grave, as it were, and the theologian Uh, R.C. Sproul contends, and I tend to agree, that this turning point of glory came at his burial. He was buried not in a humble place, but in a rich man's tomb. Secured by the wealth of Joseph of Arimathea, his body was taken by two wealthy men, Nicodemus and Joseph, to this tomb. And as he is laid in this place, 
even that resting uh, spot where Christ's body was laid anticipated the glory that was to come. And the glory that we traditionally celebrate on Easter Sunday was evident in just three short days when he rose from the dead. Christ did not, uh, Christ's ascension unto glory did not end here, however. You know the story in the gospel. Forty days later, he ascended. But where did he go? We see him in Hebrews chapter 1, seated at the right hand of the Father. This, may I submit to you, is his ascension unto glory. His ascension to the right hand, as the author of Hebrews puts it, the majesty on high. It says in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance, speaking of Christ, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having come as much, become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is our priest. This is our king. This is our Lord, our Savior, our sacrifice, our prophet, our Messiah, Jesus Christ ascended. And this is what we remember in these passages today. So what do we make of this ascending work of Christ, this glorification of Christ as it relates to the Old Testament prefiguring and prophecy of Melchizedek. Well, the author of Hebrews has much to say along these lines. From Psalm 110 to the book of Hebrews, therefore, the Bible has emphasized and anticipated the glories of resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus. Psalm 110 is cited five times in the context of the Hebrews' commentary on on this essential doctrine that we will be studying today. The essential doctrine and historical reality, that is, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This reality, the reality of Him rising from the dead, again, was anticipated of old and is is expounded on in the new. This Old Testament key to understanding Jesus and His redemptive work reminds us that the faithful were promised and waiting. At the time that David wrote Psalm 110, the faithful were promised something, and they were waiting for the one and only forever priest king, Melchizedek forever. Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, an absolutely unique character in redemptive history. And he was a little glimpse of what was to come. So this, the author of Hebrews tells us, the resurrection of Christ and his subsequent ascension, this is the meaning of that mysterious figure Abraham paid tithes to in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. He, that is Melchizedek, was a forerunner of the forever Messiah to come. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was slain on Good Friday and resurrected from the dead three days later on Sunday, this resurrection uh, was the evidence that the priest king had arrived and would soon ascend to his throne. For this reason, then, this doctrine of Christ's resurrection has been a non-negotiable point of theological contention for the Christian faith from day one. Jesus rose from the dead. That is our confession. It is absolutely spiritually and historically true, and upon it hinges our very faith itself. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not risen from the dead, We of all men are to be most pitied, but he has. 
And this is why the church celebrates not just once a year, but every Sunday morning, if their hearts are in the right place, the glories of Christ resurrected and ascended. Jesus himself proclaimed in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The book of Hebrews clarifies the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection. The resurrection, after all, was the event that signaled and welcomed forever the attainments or the accomplishments, the fulfillment in time of the once and for all forever priest king, Jesus Christ. So as we look at our text today, let me give you a heading. The resurrection, and you could add in there also, uh, parentheses, and subsequent ascension. So the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ is a precondition. It's something that's necessary to the following. Number one, Christ as prophecy fulfilled. The resurrection of Jesus was a necessary precondition or event for prophecy to be fulfilled. Number two, it was necessary for Christ as our pioneer, our forerunner, as Hebrews says, the one who goes in advance of those who will follow. If you are in him today, Christ is your forerunner. He is your pioneer. And number three, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ was necessary for Christ as priest. Christ as priest and all that represents. Let us turn to Hebrews 5 to expound this in some more detail. Learning at the footstool of the genius who wrote this book, we find Christ fulfilling prophecy of old in these following verses. Again, this is Hebrews 5, 5. So Christ also did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a reference to Psalm 2, 7, also to Psalm 110. As he also says in another place, this will be Psalm 110, verse 9, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here we see the work of Jesus and his uh, completed and victorious announcement of victory over sin and the grave tied to this uh, prophecy and the prophetic figure of Melchizedek. It goes on in verse 7 to say, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, for he was heard because of his reverence. Christ was fulfilling prophecy, and he did so reverently. Christ, as prophecy fulfilled, there were Melchizedekian, if you will, requirements prophesied of his office. And the office and involvement of Melchizedek with Abraham illustrated to us that in one individual, four things were true. He was priest, he was king, he was eternal, he was appointed. Now in our Melchizedekian king, Christ, you could even add another, he was prophet and perhaps even another sacrificed. That is, in the Old Testament, usually there, these offices were distinguished. You would have a priest, but that would be his only role. You would have a king, but that would be his only job description. You would have a prophet, but he was only a prophet. But there was an exception to this that anticipated Christ to come, and that was Melchizedek, this mysterious shadowy figure. He was king of Salem, which means that he was a, a king 
of peace, but he was also king of righteousness. He was a priest, it says, of the Most High. A priest and a king. This one, this individual was truly unique. But he was also appointed by God. It, had, it was God who anointed him or equipped him for that role. And the Bible says also something about him was eternal. The author of Hebrews says he was without genealogy. The fact that Melchizedek appears without lineage, without posterity, children born after him, or a mother and father preceding him, that fact teaches us and instructs us that he points to an individual who would, be, who would eternally fill all of these roles. Priest, king, appointed one, and then we could go on, sacrifice, and prophet. These prophecies are fulfilled as we consider the following in these aspects connected to the resurrection. That is to say, Jesus showed, revealed, that He was the Melchizedek to come, if you will, with His, first of all, reverence. Notice, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, in verse 7, to Him who was able to save Him from death, was able, uh, and He was heard because of His reverence. The term reverence here, if you look in the original language, it refers to an honorable submission, a humbling of oneself. There was a plan in place for Christ to fulfill that would, uh, that would satisfy all the conditions that He must uh, obey in order to be the Melchizedek to come. One of these conditions was reverent submission, was a humbling of Himself to the necessary qualifications to be the atonement for our sin. And this speaks to the incarnation of Christ, the humbling Himself, the making of Himself low, as we spoke of in the introduction. When Christ took on flesh, when He will, willingly laid Himself down as a sacrifice for many, when He allowed His infant form to be laid in a manger, a food trough for animals, when He allowed Himself to be born, when He was born, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin, of a couple, to a family, a couple of low means, of low estate, He was fulfilling this condition of reverently submitting Himself to the terms and conditions that the Word of God required to be our Savior and our Lord. Consider John chapter 11. An example of this evident in Christ's ministry. In John 11, we see both the humility and the glory of Christ in the same events. In John 11, 25 or 24, Martha has in, in, uh, beseeched him. She said to him, I know that he will rise again, speaking of Lazarus, Lazarus in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says to her, and again, this is with reference to her dead relative, this is Lazarus in the grave. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. As the record continues, we see in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. A two-word verse, the shortest verse in Scripture, but one of the most profound. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. You see, Jesus is constant, uh, it, that, he is, uh, that he is conscious in his ministry of what he is doing in fulfillment. So every display of emotion, every entreaty to his heavenly Father, every prayer and every demonstration of his glory is fulfilling to a T the conditions for our atonement and the fulfillment of prophecies of old. 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This story, this account of Christ demonstrating his power to raise the dead, demonstrating also his humility in weeping for his loved one, Lazarus, Demonstrating also his relationship with the Father as he prays to the Lord. Demonstrating also his fulfillment of prophecy. Here he is in the days of his flesh. And examples like these, offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. For those whose hearts had been finely tuned, by loving and appreciating the Scriptures, as the Spirit had prepared their hearts to recognize the Messiah. They could have known. Many would have known. And there were a few examples, like those in the temple who welcomed Christ, who immediately upon seeing this infant, began to cry with tears of joy, knowing that their Messiah had come. If they had spent the time to think through Psalm 110, they would have been looking forward to a Melchizedek, King and uh, Melchizedekian, if you will, king and priest, would atone for their sins, yet have such power that he could defeat even the grave. Christ prophetically fulfilled his role as he demonstrated his reverent submission to the plan of God and as it was evidenced in his ministry. Secondly, in this passage, we read of his perfection. It says, although he was a son, again, Hebrews 5, verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This passage of Scripture may be curious to us because we understand that Jesus was without sin and absolutely perfect. So in what sense was he therefore being made perfect? In verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is where the Greek is very important and helps us to understand the word for perfect here is uh, teleos, teleos, which means 
plan, purpose, or design. This morning in the study with the the young people, we were going through evidences for the existence of God. And one of the evidences we talked about was evidence from design. And another adjective that refers to that is a teleological argument for the existence of God. It's a complicated word. It might be uh, to you, but it's the same word or the same root is shared by the original Greek for perfect. Teleos, meaning design. Teleological, meaning uh, uh, by design or designed. So when we read in Hebrews 5, 9, that being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What we are reading is that Christ, by design, is going through every single stage in the process whereby our salvation will be secure. He is learning obedience, that is to say, he is following the prescription of God's will for him through his entire life, from the day he was born to the day he goes to Calvary and beyond, to satisfy the design for the salvation of our sins, if you are in him today. The sins of the elect were atoned for by the Lord, who in his obedience and perfection satisfied everything down to the last detail. And when he did so, when the conditions were met, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This perfection, this design, this satisfying to an absolute perfect T, a perfect fit, what was required prophetically and prophetically proclaimed of old is an evidence to our Lord that he was the Melchizedek to come. This is Melchizedek forever. This is the priest and the king, the Messiah, the Lord, the sacrifice, the prophet, satisfying the conditions for our salvation. Finally, in this passage, we see Christ fulfilling prophecy inasmuch as he was the called one, the anointed one. This is what the Christ or Messiah means. He was appointed, designated. It says in verse 10, being designated by God, high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In order for a priest to be legitimate, in order for a prophet, for that matter, to be authentic, they must be called out and appointed. In the Old Testament, you see the picture of the anointing oil, where the prophet, let's say, comes and anoints, the, like Samuel, to David, the king to be. This is God's chosen one, and when that anointing is poured upon the head of the agent for God's will, it is a picture of God's equipping. God is giving him his, God's giving to his servant the substance, the means, the power, the authority to fulfill his will and call for him. This is a picture all through the scriptures. This is a picture that the author of Hebrews in chapter 5 highlights time and again. Notice verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men. So that word chosen speaks to this concept. So every priest chosen from among men is appointed. Another word indicating this designation of the Lord. We go on, it says in verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You recall at Jesus' baptism, the anointing or the appointing ceremony, as it were, of Christ himself? The Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven echoes what? This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. This is something of an anointing ceremony, if you will. At this point, it is clear to those with eyes to see that the Melchizedek priest king has been chosen and appointed. 
that he has been purposed to accomplish God's will. As we continue on, we see other references to this idea as well. It says um, in verse uh, 5 that Christ also did not exalt himself, uh, made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said uh, the following. Maybe we already covered that one. We go on and it says in verse 10, finally, he, speaking of Christ, was designated by God high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So this chosen, appointed, or even begotten or called language all speaks to this idea that the priest king is visibly anointed and is revealed and proclaimed as God's chosen one to accomplish his uh, predestined task. So here we have Christ as prophecy fulfilled. And in order for all of this to be accomplished, it, it hinges on the resurrection. Because Christ showed himself in the resurrection to be the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, we find him fulfilling, even leading up to that event, all of these things. There are those who had risen from the dead prior to Christ's coming. Lazarus was one example. However, Lazarus was not Melchizedek to come. Neither were any of those who had received life back. Why? Because they did not fulfill the conditions. They were not Christ when His perfect fulfillment of God's law and prophecy would be the one who, and the only one who could save us from our sins. Let's move to our second passage in the next, in the next chapter, Christ as Pioneer. The resurrection of Jesus and His ascension was necessary for Christ as pioneer. It was a precondition, a necessary aspect of Christ as forerunner, or you could also say covenant head. In the Bible, the concept of covenant includes different aspects, but one element is a head or a leader. There is one who represents the group that cuts covenant or makes um, or, or is there when the solemn uh, process and vows are taken, so on and so forth. Abraham is a good example of a covenant head. Abraham represented a people. God gave promises to Abraham that would extend to his seed. God made a, an agreement and a relationship with him and said, your lineage will be blessed. They will be numbered like the sands of the sea or the stars in heaven. Abraham was a covenant head. Of course, Adam was a covenant head in our sin. Adam fell and in Adam's fall, so did all who are children, descendants the lineage of Adam, that would include you and me. But in God's perfect plan, he would supply another perfect covenant head. This would be the Melchizedekian high priest, if you will. This would be Christ, the forerunner, the pioneer, the one who would go before us. And his experience would be shared with us if we put our faith and trust in him, if we are bound to him by relationship and by covenant. This is what it means to be in Christ. Well, Lord willing, we'll have a baptism service coming up pretty soon. And in baptism, we identify with the work of Christ. Because Christ is our covenant head. He died for our sins. Therefore, we died to the, uh, with Him, as it were. He was raised from the dead. Therefore, we are raised from the death of sin unto newness of life. His experience becomes our own because He is our covenant head. In this way, he is our pioneer. Hebrews 6 speaks of this in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, 
since he had no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So this is the oath or the promise or God's word where he commits himself to accomplish something. And God had done this in Christ. Christ himself is spoken of as the word of God. In other words, Christ is the promise of God made manifest. Jesus is the living proof of, proof of God keeping His promises, fulfilling His covenant, and satisfying those terms, as we've mentioned, in that very event. It says in verse 18, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Here we see Christ as our pioneer, as fulfillment of God's word. He as our forerunner and as our covenant head is God's promise to us that his word is coming true in him sending his son to die for us. In the oath that the Lord has made, we witness in the resurrection God's sovereign and his self-authenticating word. When Christ is raised from the dead, the, there are passages of Scripture that describe these redemptive events as a seal. A lot of times a document would come in the ancient world with a seal. It was a stamp of authenticity, often wax. Then there was an insignia. That insignia represented that it came from the authentic source, the true authority. So when you open that document, it carried the weight of the king's word. And in a similar way, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a seal, it was, a, it was God keeping His oath, it was a certification, it was an absolute certainty in this event in history that God was keeping His word and that He had declared victory over our sin and that the true priest had finally come. So Christ came as a, keep, a keeping God's word and keeping this oath. There are two witnesses, however, whereby we can judge God's word as true. There's an oath and there's also, may I submit, a promise. In verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to God, for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It goes on to describe this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. The covenant that was made with Abraham and David was honored uh, in history in God's perfect time. In First uh, Samuel chapter 7, I believe, is the passage where God makes a covenant with, with David. And he says, I will uh, establish your throne forever. There will always be someone from your lineage on the throne. And this was the oath that God had made. Well, this promise came to pass with the ascension of Christ. It took a priest and a king to fulfill the covenant to David that there would be one who would rule and reign on his throne forever. It took a priest because sins needed to be atoned for. And he 
took on that intercessory, that mediating role. It took a king because that was the promise that David would have a descendant who would rule forever. And again, only Christ could fulfill ultimately both of those roles. And so we see the promise coming to pass. If we go back in Hebrews, there's reference to lineage with respect to Abraham in chapter 2, 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. goes on, For because he himself has uh, suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is Christ, our pioneer. He suffered for us. He was subjected to the tests that we failed and passed them, and thus his righteous law-keeping is transferred to our account upon our salvation again as our covenant head. This is Christ, the forerunner who goes before as pioneer and fulfills the promise to the offspring of Abraham and to the throne of David. Finally, we have our hope described in Hebrews chapter 6. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the eternal place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The pr- Jesus' resurrection was proof that he is our forerunner. It was a precondition. Because Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into glory, we have hope that we will one day rise from the dead at the Lord's second coming, and ascend with Him into glory as well. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, we have this hope that we will one day join Him in the inner place that is the holy place behind the curtain. There is so much wrapped up here, and it has to do with priest. The priest, the exclusive privilege of going into the holiest place, the place of the most profound uh, exchange of communion, relationship, communication with the Lord in His graces, where His favor is shed abroad in that relationship, that place was only for the high priest in the tabernacle and temple picture of old. But there would come, and that priest could bring no one with him. Why? Because he was a sinner. He needed to offer sacrifices for his own sins and the sin of the people. But there would, be, there would come one, a priest and a king, a perfect sinless one in the future, Not by the order of Aaron, the old order that needed to sacrifice for themselves and for the people. And it was just a symbol, not substance. Just a type and shadow, not the fullness. But there would come one who in himself would sacrifice his own flesh so that he could secure entrance for all who trust and believe in him into the holiest, most profound, incredible fellowship, love, and communication with God Almighty forever. Praise His holy name. This is Jesus, our Lord, our pioneer and forerunner. You see why, you can see in this, uh, for this reason why Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are to be most pitied. Everything that we have placed our hope in hinges on the truth, the reality, and the event secure for us in history of Christ raising from the dead. And more than this, ascending into glory. Imagine you're entering into a dark forest 
and there is a guide who goes before you with night vision goggles. And you have trust that he can see what you are totally blind to. And he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. Hang on to this end of the rope and I will go before and lead us through this dangerous uh, forest. I know this area like the back of my hand, and even though there's sinkholes and quicksand and uh, dangerous bands and hordes and thieves that sleep in the recesses, hang on to this rope. You'll be safe with me. What, what should you do? What would you do? Well, I imagine you're, uh, by the time you're done going through that woods, your knuckles would be in a charley horse. It'd be hard to pry your hands open, and they'd be white from lack of circulation because the one who could see the path has gone before you. This is something of the picture of Christ our Lord. Right now, in our limited faculties, we don't always have the faith or foresight to see everything. We have to trust that our forerunner has defeated death for us. We've never died before. We don't know by our own experience if we will pass immediately into glory. We know that from the promise and what our forerunner has done. So he goes before, the word says, we have this sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, like a rope attached to an anchor, a hope that is entered into the holy place behind the curtain, so that as Christ leads forward into glory, your salvation hangs on to the rope of his accomplishments for all your worth, so that when you die, he pulls you through the valley of the shadow of death straight to glory eternal, straight to what the holy place prefigured of old, straight to glory. This is Christ, our forerunner. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended. And in so doing, he has paved the way for our happy ever after, if you will. Let me say this. Without the resurrection, happy ever after remains a mere fairy tale. We are obsessed, the human beings are, with a better future, with a better tomorrow. Things will get better, we hope, we pray, we build, we work, we fantasize. Uh, so many stories hinge upon the better a day, the, the dawn that will come, the happy ever after, the utopian hope of the future that man tries in his humanistic uh, vain ambitions to construct for himself. But it will never happen, except if and only when man hangs on to, we as sinners hang on to the rope that is tied to Jesus Christ, the only one as sinless as king and priest who could navigate death so that we could pass through that unto pass through death unto eternal life we could escape the wages of sin without certain spiritual hope human consciousness is rendered a tragic curse the awareness of the reality of the despair of no hope or certainty beyond the grave is an absolutely paralyzing thought hebrews itself has said as much when in uh, chapter 2, for instance, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, speaking of Christ, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and listen, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The only way to be free from the slavery of our own death, the ominous reality of the bondage of our sin is the fact that Christ became a man, took on flesh, satisfied the conditions for our atonement, and that in salvation we have a rope attached for Him into the holy places of glory. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a precondition for Christ as priest. 
Christ's resurrection and ascension is absolutely necessary for him to be our high priest. Turn over to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7.15, we read these glorious words. This, meaning this new order of priesthood, becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of who? Melchizedek. Who has become a priest on the basis of a legal requirement, excuse me, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Notice that phrase. Jesus Christ is not a priest because of the terms of his birth, the way Aaron, uh, the priest, the Levites were, but he is a priest by the power of an indestructible life. So his, the legal requirements of his priesthood were actually sealed upon his resurrection. If Christ's life was not indestructible, he could not be the forever Melchizedekian priest. But because Christ rose from the dead, he is our high priest. More than this, he is a high priest of a better covenant. For it is witness of him, you are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 17, on the one hand, the former command is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The author is beginning to describe this new covenant, this glorious reality of the priesthood of Jesus Christ and how superior it is for us. Verse 20, it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So note two things that qualify Christ as the superior priest that we see in the text. One is his life was indestructible. Death could not keep him in the grave. The second was God made an oath all the way back in Psalm 110 that he would be priest forever. So by the unchangeable word of God and by the indestructible uh, nature of his being in his, and evidence in his resurrection, Christ is a superior high priest. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus Christ, because of who he was, the office that he fulfilled, the Melchizedek forever, priest, king, Messiah, sacrifice, Savior and Lord. Because of this, we are assured, we are guaranteed a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You see, they were inferior because they died in their office. They could not be the forever priest, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So three things the resurrection proves about the superiority of Christ's priesthood. First of all, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. Because of his indestructible life, because he was the fulfillment of God's oath, the terms of our salvation are the glorious fulfillment and so far surpass anything that was of old. That is to say that in spite of the milk and honey that flowed in the promised land under Aaron and Moses and the like, the glories of heaven cannot even compare, or the promised land of old cannot even compare to the glories of heaven. What is purchased on the, ground of, on the grounds of Christ's priesthood by way of blessing and benefit and promised land, if you will, is so far uh, greater that it is spoken of in these terms as the greater or as the new covenant, uh, as a better covenant. 
in Hebrews 7, 22. So we have this, and we also have the permanence of his office, a better covenant and permanence of his office. As we have just read in verse 23, the former priests, there were many in number. They came and they went. They were prevented by death by, uh, from continuing in office in 1 Samuel 4, 3 through 11. There's reference, uh, we, a reference that we covered in the context of Psalm 78. Eli is, I think, 98 years old. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are not good. Uh, exa- they don't follow the good example of their father. They're wicked. And the Ark of the Covenant is in a place of obscurity. The people are confused. Their enemies are overrunning the land. They've just been defeated by the Philistines. They think, well, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get the priests involved. The priests go Hophni and Phinehas. They bring the Ark of the Covenant to the front lines. And does it save them? No, it doesn't. Instead of being the magic charm they thought would defeat their enemies, the Ark of the Covenant is actually delivered in God's providence into the hands of the Philistines. And Hophni and Phinehas are killed along with 30,000, added to the 4,000 that had died just a few days previously in this battle. And then they go back, and a messenger from the battle lines brings the news to Eli. Eli's old at this time. He can't see, and he's sitting there in this vacated, this empty house of God, Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing his presence, having been removed. And the message is brought to him that the Ark has been captured, and your sons have been killed. And he tips over backwards, and his head and his neck snaps, and he immediately dies. If you lived in Israel at that time, and you regularly attended worship services, if you went to the temple, and you were looking for Eli the next day, or maybe that day, and to find him dead, how would you feel about your covenant circumstances? How would you feel about your spiritual life and chance? Where else would you turn? The priest is dead. His sons have been slaughtered. The Ark of the Covenant has been stolen. Tears would flood your eyes. You would weep because you had no hope, at least no tangible hope. There was hope. The hope was in the prophecy of Melchizedek to come. And this priest was different. Eli was a good guy in many ways. Could he hold a candle to Christ? There was an eternal chasm between Eli, a sinner, and Christ, the righteous one, to come, who by the power of his indestructible life, would never die, but would make perpetual intercession for his people. He is there, brothers and sisters, right now before the throne of God, interceding, appealing to his blood shed. And that priceless, that priceless substance of his blood shed as the atoning power for your sin, praying for you and for me if you are in him today. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, speaking again, Psalm 110, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever and again, He has fulfilled God's design, is that term perfect again, forever. So who do we have as our high priest? One who continues forever. It says in verse 25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ, in his resurrection and his ascension, demonstrated his superior priesthood. It was a better covenant 
and he was the guarantor. The permanence of his office secured for us assurance that we are always forever represented before the Father. And he is powerful to save to the uttermost. Christ as priest is a guarantor of a better covenant. His office continues in perpetuity and he has absolute power to save. This week I noticed on like the Drudge Report or something a weird story from the Philippines. There were people wandering in the streets with uh, kind, of, kind of like cat of nine tails, whips in their hands and they were beating themselves on their back and walking down these processions and wouldn't you know it, they would ascend this, this hill and there was ritual crucifixions that take place where people literally will stand on a cross and they'll take some <coughs> thin nails and they will pound them right through their flesh. And so you have people that have beat themselves literally until their backs were bleeding, crucified on the cross. And the article said that they were making atonement for their sins. Will this work? No. It's ironic that at Easter time, we have stories like this that demonstrate the highest form of hopeless blasphemy. Hopeless blasphemy. Do you think that your blood it can satisfy your own sins? The only way we pay for our own sins apart from Christ is hell forever. It's the wrath of God levied against the eternal injustice that we have committed and our crimes against Him, against His eternal glory. That is the only way we pay for our own sins. We can't avoid hell by beating our own backs. Our blood can purchase no one's salvation. It's the blood of a sinner. But there was blood that was without sin. There was a perfect sinless lamb who had no need like other priests to offer sacrifices for himself and for his own sins. And this was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I just gave you a graphic example of how man tries to cover his own sins. There are many other uh, you know, less graphic examples, but equally blasphemous. People cry out for atonement. They want to feel like they're okay and they're safe and their future is secure and their sins are atoned for and they're not that bad. In American society today, oftentimes I see it taking shape in a, a kind of scapegoat individual. All of a sudden the media will highlight the sins of an individual and everyone will say, look how wicked they are, look at how wicked they are. I have this big old hashtag me too moment is a good example. I was abused too, I was abused too by this abuser, this abuser. Harvey Weinstein, you know, this figure from Hollywood is set up as the whipping boy of everybody's sins for a little bit of time. And yeah, he was a filthy guy and a wicked sinner. But is anyone in the hashtag Me Too moment, uh, movement not a wicked sinner? No, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is there any atonement in saying, I'm a victim and I deserve to be treated better and so-and-so is responsible for the evils of this world and my condition, not me? No. The gospel comes to each and every sinner and says, you are responsible for your transgressions against the Lord. And there is only one means of atonement. There is only one sacrificial lamb. There is only one substitute sacrifice upon which your sins can be rolled onto. And he was slaughtered so that you might be free. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he proved he was the one in his resurrection. And he ever lives in his ascension to make intercession for you and for me before the throne of glory. Now, we weren't there when Jesus died. We didn't touch as 
Thomas had the privilege of doing the scars in his literal fleshly hands and feet. But we do have something that God has provided for us today to remember and to proclaim the only sacrifice to wash away our sins. And it is represented in the elements of communion. The broken bread, the poured cup, represent the body of Christ broken and the blood that he shed for our sins. And in this meal before us today, we have a touchstone, a remembrance, an opportunity to let our imagination, our grateful hearts overflow with the kind of reverent, awe-filled worship uh, and and fear-filled worship that Hebrews goes on to talk about. We have the opportunity to participate in this meal if you are a believer in that spirit today so that we might remember what God has done. And this is a huge blessing for us. I'd ask you to remember that today. When you partake of the juice, when you eat the bread, remember that you serve a Savior who was killed, but who was raised from the dead, and now is your high priest forever before the throne of the Lord, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let us transition in prayer. O Lord, we are so thankful for the promises of Scripture that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, fulfilled. You had decreed these things from before time began. And our Savior willingly took on the call and was anointed and was uh, given to us, Lord Jesus, to satisfy the terms of atonement that we might be free, that we might be holy in your sight. We thank you for this truth. This day, Lord, as we partake at your table, I pray that you would sear upon our consciousness the reality of our salvation in Christ. Let us not soon forget. Let us live in light of these truths. Let us be reminded once again of the glorious power to save manifest in Christ our Lord. All to the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.